0: Welcome to the Silver Screenings, a podcast celebrating those movies in their 25th anniversary. Tonight, we round out 1998 with The Truman Show, starring Jim Carrey. Well, Matt, Brian, it's great to be back together here to close out 1998. Uh, There's obviously a lot of movies we have left on the table here from this year. Uh, So, unfortunately, it's all coming to a head here, and... uh, I think that uh, we can all agree that 1999 is going to provide us a lot of opportunities when we start kicking things off in January for many, many uh, great movies to talk about that year. But before we round out this year, I wanted us to focus in on The Truman Show, which came out on the first weekend of June in 1998 and was the top film of that particular weekend. It grossed $44 million on that weekend and uh, was a huge hit for Paramount Pictures, uh, knocking out uh, other newcomer that weekend, A Perfect Murder, starring Michael Douglas, and uh, dropping Godzilla from its top spot down to number three. And we talked about Titanic last week and how it had bested The Big Lebowski. Titanic was still in the top ten that weekend. It ranked number eight and pulled in $2.5 million in its 25th week of release. So that is still shocking to me all these years later how something could have that much legs to it uh so the truman show uh we here are talking about that uh what do you guys remember from that movie when it came out back in 1998 doctor peterson
1: i remember it being you know kind of a cultural phenomenon in a way i mean a lot of people were talking about it seemed very popular uh it had a big impact i i didn't see it till to come on on video, I think. Uh, so I, I didn't catch it in the theater. But uh, it, it seemed like it was really uh, seen as a big step forward for Jim Carrey in his career, right? Uh, really making that transition from goofy comedies like Ace Ventura into more serious dramatic fare, but still a role that really played to his strengths as an actor, um, as a comedic actor. Uh, so that that's what I... When I remember from its time of release,
0: yeah, it was uh, the start of the idea of a potential Oscar buzz. Actually, that was one of the things I was thinking about uh, was the fact that he was famously snubbed of an Oscar nomination that year, and there's a whole bunch of campaign for him. I think he won a Golden Globe for the performance, and so it was thought of as a real big uh, the Academy being snooty and uh, not giving Jim Carrey uh, his due uh, for his performance in this. But yeah, it was it was definitely I remember thought of as a a maturing of Jim Carrey as an actor even though I actually didn't think his performance was really all that radically different like you said Matt, it does play a lot to his typical strengths, his, his physical comedy, those kinds of things but the material around him certainly is very different than what he was doing mm-hmm. uh, unless, you know, maybe uh, Brian, you feel differently that it, it perhaps was just a very natural successor to Dumb and Dumber
2: <laughs> I wouldn't go that far I But I was thinking a lot about Jim Carrey's performance when I watched it this time because it's been a long time since I've seen this film. I do remember seeing it in, when it came out in the theater when I guess I was 15, almost 16, and I loved it. And I think I was a big Jim Carrey fan at the time, and I remember thinking that he was very good in it. And then I watched it last night, and I kind of thought, I don't know. I mean, it's not, like you said, it's not that different for him. And I was a little bit underwhelmed by his performance from most of the film, watching it on this on this viewing, which I wasn't expecting because my memory of it is that yeah, this is the movie where he really turned into an actor, um, and wasn't just doing crazy slapstick stuff. But it's it. He's he's kind of odd in it because he is kind of doing his thing. It's not that much different, um, and I, it works for the film. But it's it's a. Kind of an odd performance in a way, and I and it was kind of unexpected to me having that reaction watching it again.
0: Well, I think what I really remember liking about the film when it came out and being most impressed by it was the screenplay. Right, so Andrew Nichol wrote the screenplay. This was uh, just a year after uh, he had done uh, Gattaca, which had been a pretty big hit, or I guess kind of a moderate hit. We talked about that last year when we were doing the podcast for 1997 titles. But uh, I think that's what I was most impressed with was just the, the creativity of it, the layers of meaning and ideas that were handled through the screenplay. And then Peter Weir's direction as something that I think really was the right sensibility for this material. Because it really is kind of a... I didn't really necessarily think of this back in 98 when I saw it, but it is just an absolutely absurd story. <laughs> there's there's yeah. no way. I was thinking about that watching it now. Like, how many things would have to work for this to happen. And I think, honestly, the only way this could work, by the way, is if uh, Truman Burbank, it was severely autistic. Uh, that's the only way you could probably pull off the the illusion for him, you know, despite all their efforts of why they're trying to say that, like, there's just no way that this would work. <laughs> but you don't feel it, at least I didn't feel it watching the film the first several times I watched it, like, because I was so sold on the screenplay and the way Peter Weir was handling the material as a director, I think he had the right amount of humor and comedy, and science fiction—not in the typical way of what we think of maybe that genre—but certainly just the sense that this is um, assuming a certain kind of technology or a certain kind of future. Because it, while it's obviously seems to be set in the late '90s, I mean the aesthetic of this world that's been created for Truman. Is really not of its own era it's kind of this throwback of of a previous world uh, from the 1950s almost uh post-war america but the idea that this massive dome could be built and seen from outer space uh all those things right does give a sense of almost science fiction uh and a parable uh, element to it and i think peter weir handles that correctly in terms of not getting too serious and not really trying to focus on those this mechanics too much because the film would collapse too fast I think. You just sort of have to buy into the concept in order to get into this movie. Yeah,
2: Yeah. that dome was really a hell of an investment before the show even came on the air, right? How did they do that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, they couldn't sell all the products uh, yet.
2: Right. right? Is that a Shark Tank episode?
1: (laughs) It's the, uh, the orb or the sphere in Las Vegas before it was a thing. Uh, so, well, Nate, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you on some points you just made here. I, <laughs> I, am not a big fan of this movie. I, I have to be honest. Uh, it, Boo. <laughs> it's, it, I, I find it interesting that you, you think the screenplay is, um, really strong and I think it has this very, you know, has some strong moments, but, and I like Andrew Nichol a lot. I mean, I'm a big fan of Gattaca, obviously, but watching this again, I, I really, it really kind of cemented some of the feelings I had about this film the first time I saw it. The concept is so out there, and the amount of cruelty that would have to be <laughs> leveled against one human being by such a large number of people uh, is just hard for me to to swallow conceptually. Uh, so I, I think just from the get-go the screenplay has a big problem just in terms of its concept. Uh, and I also think the screenplay is missing some very vital scenes, and it really stood out to me even more this time. Um, I, like, where's the scene where he's overcoming his fear of water? You know, the, the, there's that moment where he's going out to the ferry, he can't even go on the dock, and then all of a sudden, you know, we cut to him out on the boat going to Fiji, and we don't have that, that scene of him overcoming his fear. Uh, we don't have the scene of his wife leaving him. She just vanishes. You know, Laura Linney, her character just vanishes from the film. Uh, and, and then we're also kind of meant to believe that he's found true love. Uh, and I feel like that that's not developed enough, too. So I actually think this is a film that could have benefited from a longer running time. But to your point, there there are a lot of very strong moments in the film. And the layers and the nuances here... Uh, are pretty fo- pretty powerful, especially you know toward the end of the film. But I every time I think of this film and just watching it again this time, it it feels like a real missed opportunity in a lot of ways w- with its screenplay in particular.
0: So Brian, you and I are going gonna, gonna to continue <laughs> on
1: talking.
2: Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Actually, well, can
0: I just I want to offer just one? I I think you got a fair point that it does miss that beat about him overcoming the fear. I mean, it's all set up. It's there. You could kind of, if you squint, maybe see a little bit of it, of the driving over the bridge. Uh, but I don't think you're right. It's not as strong as it could be. And that kind of needs to be a little bit of the heroic development of him as he gets onto the boat. But at the same time, the film is structured so that you're shifting on your focus into Kristoff And what he's doing at that moment, so that he's missing, right? And it's discovering him in there. And so I I think that it works nonetheless, even though you're right that it would be more narratively, at least in a traditional sense, more satisfying to see that. Um, But I think you know you still get the emotional beat, and you understand that sense of him overcoming it nonetheless. As far as uh, Laura Linney's being just disappeared, that actually I think works well because. It strikes me as like what happens in certain TV shows or movies where we've seen this enough or like an actor just pisses off the producers or whatever and also just of the gone they're just like <laughs> he decided to move to Florida or whatever you know and I feel like that might have been actually part of the point of not having that but maybe I'm being too generous there in, in, the, in the development of the script that way.
2: I think it works in the sense that the relationship is basically over when they get back from the, you know, when, when they dro- drove over the bridge and go to the nuclear plant or whatever. And then they have that, you know, encounter in the kitchen and then Noah Emmerich's character shows up and, and she's, you know, shouting to the producers to help her and how it's not professional. And, and then when she's gone, it's like, yeah, that makes sense because that actor was just getting the hell out of there at that point. So that, for me, wasn't a hole at all that made sense. The script is so repetitive, though, I think. It's just like
1: a lot of the same beats over and over when it comes to all these obstacles, you know, getting in Truman's way. And, yeah, it's creative maybe the first two, three times you see that, but it's overused way too much. And it's like, okay, we, we kind of get the point. We we understand he's getting on, he's catching on to things, and uh, he's getting suspicious. And it, it takes up too much of the running time that that whole angle. Well, I don't know. We, we don't have to parse too many uh, details here, but I, I think the screenplay has a lot of a lot of problems.
2: Your reaction is interesting because after Nate was doing his initial spiel about you know how much he liked it and talking about how there's problems with it. I was thinking, but but you know that he, he didn't think too much of them, I was thinking, well, the movie is so well paced that it doesn't give you a whole lot of time to think about these things. Uh, and then here Matt comes with all the problems that he's got with the film. I think you're right, the initial conceit of the film is totally out there and you just have to go with it. And if, yeah. if you can't go with it, then you're going to have a big problem with it. But if you can accept it and just say, okay, yes, this is the setup of this guy's life, then I think it does have all of these really interesting philosophical, um, uh, questions to it. Um, and to me, it's this movie that does raise all of these interesting questions, um, about, you know, freedom and, um, and you know, just free will. Um, and it also happens to be extremely, at least to me, extremely entertaining and I can step away from it and think, yeah, like, why didn't I have this? Why didn't I have this? But yeah, it's so, the pacing is so great, and it just moves from one thing to to the other, that I'm not thinking about any of that when I'm watching it.
0: Well, I think one way to look at this is it's a version of Plato's allegory of the cave, right? In the sense of, you know, we're presented with the reality, and you know, a lot of us in our own life, right, I think are all going to be presented with certain things. But then, is what we are seeing really real or do we just kind of go along with it? And the assumption on Kristoff's part as, pl- as played by Ed Harris is that Truman will just continue to accept it. And, you know, they have to engineer some things to make sure he continues to accept it. But I think the, the is at the heart of the film is really about ultimately the truth wins out, right? We, we desire the truth, we seek the truth and we will find the truth. And I think that's an interesting message and an interesting idea to pursue. Uh, but you're right, Matt, that I, I don't know that I appreciated my first viewings of it, just how utterly cruel every human being involved well, with
1: this for is. For 30 years. Including the audiences, right? For 30 right. years or however long this show is supposed to have been going on. I mean, it's just, you know, the level of cruelty that's been <laughs> leveled against this one singular human being is just beyond my comprehension. It's just hard for me to get over that. I, and I understand you just, if you look at it, like a parable or like a fairy tale or a fantasy, and just go along with the concept. I think, I think it works. Um, but I, I, I almost feel like the the way it's executed has to be more fantastical in a way to sell that as an idea. I, but I, I want to get back to Ed Harris's character because I, I actually think he's potentially the most compelling part of this movie. And when he shows up, uh, there's a big shift in the movie, right about. Two thirds of the way through, or so, when when we were in the control room, and Ed Harris is pretty much reprising his role from Apollo thirteen, in this, uh,
0: <laughs> and
1: he, it's
0: like the jerky version of Apollo
1: thirteen. Yeah, yes. the uh, the art the artistic version, and his wardrobe is great, you know, with the the cap and the pseudo communists black <laughs> tunic or whatever he wears. <laughs> And his character is very interesting because he's clearly, he clearly fancies himself an artist, but he has this fatherly role uh, in relation to, to Truman, right? And, and that, that scene at the end where he's, he's speaking to him is super interesting, I think, because it really cuts to the heart of what it means to be a parent in many ways. You know, do you let your child go out into the world or do you try to keep them within this contained, safe environment? And you get the sense that he doesn't understand what he's done to this other person. And, and in his own way, this is him expressing his love for Truman in this very, very parental sense. And and that's a really, really interesting aspect of this movie, I think. and And definitely probably the most effective emotional moment, I think, in the film.
0: Well, I think we have to take a moment just to appreciate the music, right? I mean, a big part of why I think I get into this film and why I can get swept up in it is the incorporation of Philip Glass's music and the original score that is accompanying it. I mean, it's very well done. And of course, other source music, uh, they use Mozart at different times. and It all comes together so beautifully at that final climactic scene uh, where you really do get the... I didn't necessarily think of it mo- so much as a parent-child, although I think that element is there. But I was thinking almost more like um, creator and uh, creature, right? I'm, I'm, I think that allegory is kind of a part of it as well. For sure, right?
1: speaking from the um, clouds, yeah, he's kind of a god character.
0: But I mean, it, it, I do think that yeah, the the way it kind of
1: has the pretentious artist is pretty great. <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's pretty funny. I think that aspect of it.
2: Of course, there is that parental love at the end and not wanting to let him go, but then it, it's preceded by him, Kristoff, essentially trying to kill Truman when he's in the boat and telling them to turn up the intensity of the wind and the waves. And and you know, one of the one of the people on the crew says something about you know we'll um, we'll kill him, and and Kristoff says. Oh, they, they say he's going to die on live TV. And Christoph says, well, he was born on live TV. It's like, oh, okay, man, yes. that's that's <laughs> that's cold, man.
0: Yeah, I think the HR department uh, is going to have some very strong feelings about that, by the way. <laughs> Again, stuff I didn't think of back in 98 when I was 15, but I, I definitely think of now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, n- I never got the sense he was actually trying to kill him there. He was more just caught up in the caught up in the moment of trying to direct the most dramatic version of the scene, you know. Uh but I agree. Yeah, yeah. It's I I mean, there definitely are a lot of layers here. I, I just wish the the screenplay was thought through a little bit more. And I, I like I said, I, I do think it would have benefited from um a bit more of running time.
0: That is a a fair point. I actually had forgotten that it was 100-some minutes as opposed to two hours. Mm -hmm. 20 more minutes to flesh out some elements uh, or to refine a few things here or there could have maybe worked. That being said, I think part of why you don't get caught up in the the impossibilities of this concept is because they don't try to explore them and they move through it fast enough that you just kind of can enjoy some of the satire, uh, some of the tongue-in-cheek humor, uh, those different things work well in a shorter format. So I, I, I don't know. I could see either way. I mean, there's I think this is a, a story that could have been directed or written in a number of different ways with a number of different perspectives yeah. uh, that could have made for interesting different kinds of movies.
2: Yeah, I had a memory of scenes that weren't in the film. Like, I, I had a memory of a, of a scene with... Um, what, what's his... Noah Emmerich's character? Is it Malcolm? Marlon marlin um of uh of marlin sort of you know being regretful with truman at some point and that's not in there at all maybe it's a deleted scene or something that i saw at some point but or maybe it's just because noah emmerich has that written on his face in in a few of the scenes he's such a good actor yeah he's really um, good in this too he kind of got overlooked
0: is. at the time but he's uh, he's excellent
2: mm-hmm. yeah he's, and laura he's great linney and, too i thought laura yeah. linney
0: was fantastic absolutely well, turning our attention to our Q and A, we'll start with our marketing executive question. Uh, since we did have this last month, Brian, hopefully you remembered that this is one of the things that we do, uh, and won't uh, accuse me of springing on this this on you in the last minute. <laughs> so, what's the best tagline for this movie? Have you got anything?
2: What's the actual tagline? I think it's "On the air, unaware." Is that really yep, the tagline? Yep, on the air, unaware. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty good tagline. I don't think I can do better. What do you got, Nate?
0: Well, I was thinking it's, it's, it's kind of a, a play on one of the lines at the very beginning when they're doing the, the interviews of the cast uh, of the show, and uh, Marlon says, uh, he doesn't say exactly this, but he's making a point about how it's, it's, it's real, but it's controlled. So I thought you could maybe do a, um, a tagline that would be, it's all real, just controlled.
1: Not bad. Mine is, and you thought Hollywood was cruel. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say though, the
0: on the air unaware—that's that's a great tagline with the, with the rhyme. It, it does work well,
1: it's it's got a ring to it for sure.
2: I mean, it's much better when we were talking last month about the Big Lebowski, and it was what what was that? Sometimes you need a Lebowski. Yeah, now, that was a bad tagline, but mm-hmm. this is a very good one. They had good marketing people for the Truman Show.
0: Well, that's why it was number one at the box office and could beat Titanic in its 25th week. Okay, our hindsight is 2020 question. Do the critics and audiences get this movie right when it came out? Uh, it was a huge critical, darling, and it was a big hit. It made over $260 million. Uh, excuse me, over, yeah, $260 million on a $60 million budget. So it was a massive hit and uh, much beloved at the time. I think they got it right. Um, maybe there's a few things that we couldn't anticipate just in terms of how things would develop socially or technologically in terms of like, nobody was thinking about smartphones and GPS and all those kinds of things at the time. But I still think that it, they had the, the right read on this film, but Matt, obviously you are a a negative Nelly over there.
1: (laughs) You know, I, I, I can understand why this did very well critically and, Performances are very strong and I think it's very well directed. It's it just it's the the screenplay that I I have issues with but so I I guess I disagree with the the critics on Some aspects of their Evaluations of this film.
2: Yeah, Matt's wrong. Nate's right (laughs) actually And for our 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 audience doesn't know this but generally Matt and I are the ones who agree on a film and Nate is It's like Matt and I will like it. Nate has to be you know Debbie Downer about it, but in this case, Matt's the odd one we're, out. Yeah, we're, we're we're mixing it up for the end of the year here.
0: I know it's it's we're turning a new leaf. <laughs> 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 okay, our Stranger Things nostalgic question: What has changed from when we first saw this movie in terms of what we think of it? What do you say, Brian? Have you got any new thoughts or new ideas?
2: It kind of goes back mostly to what I was saying about Jim Carrey's performance earlier, where I thought he was great when I saw it initially and now it's an odd performance to me. The thing that I thought was the best in it was the bit at the end when he, when he's, you know, basically leaves after his conversation with Kristoff and he does the good afternoon, good evening and good night. And then he takes his bow. And in that scene I could sort of be like, that's why they cast Jim Carrey for this role because he is perfect in that scene. Um, but yeah, I don't love him in the film and I can, I kind of watched it thinking, "I, I think this would be better with somebody else. I don't know. I didn't spend any time thinking about who they should have cast instead. And I think they really intended it for him. And I know that they waited to film it for him, but I I just don't love him in it. But other than that, I mean, I, I think it holds up great. I like it as much as I did then. I think it's a fantastic film. Uh, I just didn't love him in it as much as I remember.
0: Yeah. I think I would say that what's changed in my perspective uh, is just recognizing how, utterly cruel this actual concept is. I don't think I appreciated (laughs) that at all. And just how really bad Christoph must be at his job. Because uh, like the scene where Truman goes to check on his wife as a nurse, like she's not a nurse. She's just an actor. And the doctor is just an actor. Like maybe when you have a fake city for this show, you should actually bother to actually have real doctors (laughs) in your, in your studio. Right. So it just seemed like there's a lot of things that Christoph did not really consider, <laughs> in terms of building this world, uh, that for he for his TV show. So that's another thing. I thought Christoph really seemed to be bad at figuring out how to produce this world.
2: I mean, he kept it going for thirty years. That's not, that's not too bad.
0: Well, he's I, got that Kathleen Kennedy magic. He can survive anything.
2: I mean, but,
1: it's it's another screenplay problem right there, right? I, because the producers of the show seem very incompetent. And you really wonder how you know, how they kept it going for so long, uh, but hey, don't we all wonder that when we look at some of these TV
0: shows that stick around for years?
1: Or, or yeah, I, I guess you could apply that to a lot of things <laughs> in the world. Uh, so yeah, my opinion hasn't changed that much. I, you know, actually didn't remember all that much about this movie. Uh, so watching it again refreshed my memory quite rapidly. Uh, so, uh, again, I, I, I there were some really great moments in this film. I'm a big Philip Glass fan, too, so it's always nice to hear his music. Uh, but still, still fell short for me. And our
0: Walt Kowalski, get off my long question, what would Gen Z think of this movie if it were released today? Brian, what do you say?
2: I think people would like it. I think um, it wouldn't seem, I think it has a sort of a prescient feel for a lot of folks because it. I think it predated a lot of the reality TV that, you know, I think Big Brother and Survivor started shortly after this. Um, so So I don't know, I don't, maybe it wouldn't seem quite as unique a concept, although reality TV doesn't operate under the Presumption that the main character has no idea that he's in a reality TV show, right? So it's still, I think, unique from that perspective, and it's a it's a very interesting, well made, and entertaining movie, at least for two out of three people on this podcast. So I think that Gen Zers would appreciate it as well.
1: Yeah, I I I, I think they would enjoy it. I, I mean, it's a crowd pleasing movie, right? I mean, it's at its core, it's really about overcoming adversity as well, and that's always a story that resonates with people and. Uh, I think it would, to a general audience, it would still play very well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the the beats and the, the nature of its themes or ideas would still resonate. Obviously, I was trying to think, how would you do this in 2023? You know, mm-hmm. with all the different things that have developed technologically, um, it would be an interesting task to see how this could be put into our world today. That would be the only thing... Uh, Obviously, a Gen Z person would be so used to streaming and online. I mean, so the sense of having stuff around you all the time that for them like being the audience in the world watching Truman, that they could easily get. But I think the the concept that Truman would never be able to figure out the world he's in um, would seem like you need to work harder at that to make it resonate if it was coming out today versus when it came out in 1998.
2: You just have to set it in the past because it would never work in a world with smartphones. So Truman would have to be in the 1950s or whatever, mm-hmm. or the 1990s, I suppose.
0: Or yeah, you're, or you'd have to be almost like not that I'm endorsing this movie at all, but The Village by Amonite Shemalan, where <laughs> like it's set in modern day, but it, they made it as if it was set in the new, whatever Puritan England, New England, or something like that. Yeah, right. So I mean, I think you'd have to do something where like you just he never knows that he's actually living in the year 2023 uh, or something. You'd have to try to create that kind of artifice.
2: Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it could be, it could take place in twenty twenty three, but but Truman, the the dome is in nineteen fifty or whatever.
0: He, he's living in the Eisenhower years. <laughs> uh, the Kevin Feige franchise question: Does this movie deserve a belated sequel? So I was reading that they actually had a pitch. Andrew Nichol had a pitch about doing a TV series, uh, which would have been following Truman as he was out in the world, and just the the audiences or the the real life public would still clamor for more of him but now he'd be just aware of it uh so i don't know what that story would have looked like but hmm. that is i think the only way you could go for a sequel here that being said i have no interest in seeing what happens next i think that's the fun of it is now he's free so i don't i do i would not advocate a sequel
2: i think um you only got part of the nickel quote cuz i brought it up here cuz i thought it was really interesting um so i'll just read what nickel wrote um which is I imagine there would be a network with multiple channels all starring a subject born on the show. If I set it in New York City, there would be a girl living on the Upper East Side, a boy from Harlem, a kid from Chinatown, etc. Since they are all in their own channel and move in their own circles, they are never meant to meet. But at the end of the first season, the boy from Harlem and the rich girl find themselves drawn to each other. They both sense that the other is acting differently from anyone they've ever met because for the first time they've met someone who is not acting. In the second season, the network would desperately try to kill off their romance. I think that's a really interesting idea. And... I think the idea, I mean, you wouldn't do something with Truman. I think, like you said, that would be a bad idea for a sequel. But I think something like what he proposed sounds really interesting. You could expand on a lot of the ideas that are in the film, a lot of the things that you don't have time to go into. You still have to be able to accept the initial conceit and the cruelty of the whole operation. Um, But it does have all those interesting ideas kind of inherent to it, and I think a TV show would allow you a lot of time to explore those. Yeah, that would be an interesting way
1: to go, especially within the context of just the modern technological age and everyone's online streaming themselves and whatnot. But, uh, in regards to Truman's story proper, yeah, it's hard to see where this would go, you know, beyond his intensive psychotherapy sessions and multiple lawsuits that would <laughs> be stemming, uh, uh, from multiple directions after his, uh, his escape. So, uh, yeah, that could be you... an
0: interesting sequel. The Supreme Court case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah.
1: yeah, several Truman of our films. Uh, v. Christoph. <laughs> several films we've discussed <laughs> have lent themselves, lent themselves to natural courtroom sequels. Uh, Meet Joe Black comes to mind.
2: I mean, it make for good TV.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, in
0: many ways, we are actually living the sequel because of how many people are with Instagram or other social media forums basically advertising themselves to the world. And what we've learned is that really nobody cares. (laughs) So (laughs) I think think that's what we've come to see here. And then our final question, the producer's choice, who would you replace in the cast or crew? Matt, what do you think?
1: Mm, This is a tough one. Because I I can see Brian's point when it comes to uh, Jim Carrey's performance. And, and wondering if he is actually right for this role, which, which on its surface may may seem like an absurd notion because his persona is so inexorably tied to this film. Uh, but I might have to go with Nicolas Cage again. <laughs> I've brought him up twice now. But Nick
2: Cage in for Jim Carrey?
1: Yeah, Nicolas Cage I think would do a good job in this film. <laughs> He'd
0: have been about the right age.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. and That y- would have y- been really interesting. You would have had an unofficial uh reunion of from the rock between him and ed harris
0: his freak out a uh, nicholas cage freak out would have been far more intense and interesting than jim carrey uh-huh. yeah you that think is. about he matchstick men.
1: men you know something like matchstick men would be a good comparison well
2: apparently uh, brian de palma was initially attached to direct this film and i could totally see nick cage being in the brian de palma version of this but i think he could have worked in the peter weir version too it would have been interesting
0: I would love to, if I could, I, I like, like I said, I love this movie. I think it's great. But if I was going to just try to throw an, an alternate version of this movie, I would love to see it directed by Oliver Stone. I think his insane way of making movies at that time, this would have been the era where he's doing movies like U Turn and Natural Born Killers. And I think he just would have gone so wild with it. And Robert Richardson probably would have been a cinematographer. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it just, it would have been such a. a Just insane movie. Uh, I don't know that it would be a good movie, but I guarantee you it would have been a fascinating movie. Yeah. Uh, So that I would would love to see that alternate version of The Truman Show.
2: That makes me glad that we have the version that we have.
0: (laughs) How about you, Brian? Anybody you would try to replace?
2: Yeah, I mean, Jim Carrey, but I don't, like I said before, I don't have a good idea of who I'd replace him with. I guess they had also considered Robin Williams at the time, and I don't think he would have been better at all. Um, would have been too old who, who were other big comic actors in the 90s I mean were there other ones with kind of you know dramatic chops as well
0: well I, you know I think Tom Hanks I, did a lot of kind of yeah. semi this this sort of dramedy type things I mean he would have been a person that would have been doing a lot of these kinds of movies
2: I could see him in the film I could see Spielberg directing this film too He, yeah he was apparently considered at one point I could, I could definitely see a version of this made by him you probably wouldn't end up with way too much sentimental garbage at the end. But I think Tom Hanks would have been pretty good in that role. Yeah, he would work. Yeah, I just wanted a little bit more seriousness at times, but you also, you do you do need the light touch. I think the lightness is important to how the film works. And Carrie obviously brings that.
0: Yeah. Maybe, you know, we maybe um, Johnny Depp, actually, now I'm thinking about it, would he have been able to handle this part?
1: Hmm. I don't know if he has the levity
0: it requires at times. I'm thinking of his Tim Burton collaborations, like Ed Wood and stuff, you know? Like, he he had that yeah. sensibility in those that could have maybe worked here.
1: Tim Burton actually would have been an interesting director for this. It made it even more stylized. It actually probably could have sold the concept better. We're just going think, all over the place with
0: ideas.
2: <laughs> yeah, <that>. yeah. <laughs> I think Depp, too, has the levity. I mean, think of, like, the Pirates, his performance in the Pirates movies, but they're obviously very... You know, goofy, yeah,
1: cartoonish,
2: or, yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Food for thought. But you know, Carrie has some of that cartoonishness too.
0: Well, Matt, I, I, I'm surprised. I had no idea you didn't like this movie, but uh, we we love you anyway.
2: <laughs> well, thank well, you. A little bit less, maybe.
0: <laughs> so, well, gentlemen, uh, thanks for being a part of this, and uh, we will obviously kick off 1999 as we were saying before we recorded. 99 has a lot of great movies. So we might need to do more than one a month uh, next year because there's a lot to go through if we uh, if we uh, want to get to all the good stuff from 1999.
2: Looking forward to it. Good. I can't believe how many good movies are in 99. It's gonna be tough.
0: One of the great one of the great years of movies. All right, we'll see you next year. Thanks everybody for listening, and join us as we get ready for 1999. Neither of you is going to say party like it's
1: 1999. (laughs) Yeah, the outro has to be the Prince song, I suppose. Then we'll get sued.